Annyeonghaseyo! Welcome to the Flick Lab. I am Kari. You might be Henrik. Or then not, since we are talking about espionage, who can actually tell? Yeah, exactly. I just might be a gambler tonight, for old times' sakes. Th- this may be an inside leak going on. <laughs> Constantly. Well, Shiri, <clears throat> my goodness sakes. So, this is the most successful movie in Korea at its time. And it broke the box office record so that it was more successful than Titanic in Korea. With about 7 million people seeing this particular movie. Which is kind of surprising because I would have actually thought that Titanic would have been the number one box office draw since who in South Korea would not want to spend the two hours in movie theater to see a bunch of Westerners die horribly for half an hour. Absolutely, and well, in comparison in the numbers, Titanic almost sank. Didn't <laughs> the joke quality in this podcast. I'm Kari, I'm media assistant. Henrik is to be the master of arts. What is this cast? This cast is a movie podcast that looks at every single type of film that is out there, including, well, we'll get to that at the end of this podcast. Why would you tune in? Because we told you to. Most, most likely because you are bored and haven't found a better podcast yet. Yeah, well, to be honest, we actually get to the point quicker than most podcasts. Most podcasts have this curse of 20 minutes of talking this and that about their latest underwears, so we're going to skip from that to the movie in less than 10 minutes, usually. Also, we, in my experience, if I may... Kind of a bat, my, bat ourselves in the back here. I, I think that we here in the Flick Lab kind of a take a slightly longer dive into the film that we are in every episode going through than most of the film podcasts that do not try to make the as deep analysis. Yeah, I think we're quite thorough. You know, the average podcast, what I have listened to anyway, not to these other podcasts in the world, but just... The sense that I get is that it's more like, uh, let's have a good time. As good time as we had watching the movie. Like So there's not this huge amount of preparation for this film like we usually do. So hopefully that shows and hopefully you get something useful out of this. At least some laughs. <laughs> hopefully our listeners can get the drift that we most definitely are not having a good time here. Are you already that stressed up? Since you you mentioned the stress levels, I I have to point out how (laughs) extremely, extremely hilarious or simply sad and pathetic it is that this is now our third Asian film that we are going to go through here in this podcast. Usually when we we do these international films, we try to get a guest appearance here. Someone from the nation which is film we are going through, kind of a, give that native perspective in our proceedings. And this far, when it comes to Asian movies, we have gone through a Japanese movie about Second World War 
War Crimes, a Japanese horror film about spiral cursing the town, and now we are touching the politically loaded thriller about the tensions between the two Koreas. We did not have a guest in the War Crimes film, we do not have a guest in here. The only time we have actually managed to get a guest in our Asian lineup has been the in no way politically loaded Japanese horror film. You know, dear listeners, I tried. I tried for about a month to get a visitor, a guest to this podcast episode, but no. There was one comment from one South Korean girl who was also unable to join at this time of recording, unfortunately. She said that people might be more motivated if they got some monetary benefit from this podcast. And I said, no, well, we're we're just doing this as a hobby, so we're already going on the minus side. And heck, I would be happy for some free exposure from time to time. But I would say, South Koreans, please prove me wrong. I think there are some of you out there that are not looking for monetary benefit and maybe you want to advertise also your band or maybe a movie that you're making or maybe how awesome your Twitter feed is. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. monetary benefit is something that is most invisible here in the freak lab. <laughs> well, in, in case someone is wondering, we are actually running on negative. We have only made minus figures here since the episode one. There's basically no income at all in this podcast. Yep. Well, you know, gotta make the effort. Who knows what will happen in the future? Maybe nothing. But still, this is fun. But hey, you know, we like the challenge. Here's a challenge. Talking about South and North Korean relationships without a South Korean. Yep. So basically, the, basically today's episode is two Western white guys explaining the tension between the two Koreas. Absolutely. Since yep. we're so, so thorough, I also learned the <clears throat> Korean language for this podcast. So I'm now C1 <laughs> and... <laughs> Well, <laughs> that is the level of dedication here. <laughs> oh, this quality product we are pushing out. Not quite, but I did watch this movie twice. Shiri, how would you explain what is Shiri, the movie? What happens in Shiri? Synopsis. Synopsis, to give it extremely vague and extremely short, Shiri is pretty much the South Korean 24, the movie. Hmm. Yeah, the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking, and when you compare the two products back-to-back, this and 24, there are quite a lot of similarities in the end. Why did we choose it? That's how it says on my notes, but, well, I guess you kind of did choose it, Henrik. This is one of the movies, once again, that you have reviewed in the past for the website that we ran ages ago. And I read it, and then I suddenly saw this movie, to my surprise, in one store... Was it free record shop at the time in Espoo? Matinkyla iso omena. I saw it. I bought it. It was pricey, like 25 euros. And I really enjoyed it. So good for you that it was a good one. I'm not sure if I told you that I would kick your ass if it sucked. <laughs> I may have gotten the light notion that that might have happened if the movie ended up sucking. <laughs> What's your experience with this film? How did you come about watching this? Originally, well, Shiri is a film that I have personal tie with. Ages ago, there was a film-releasing lineup called Worldwide Cinema, which 
featured in Finland. It was a lineup that was combined from different Asian movies. Mostly all of them, if I remember correctly, all of them were South Korean movies from different genres. In that lineup, there were some samurai sword drama adventures. There were action thrillers like Shiri. There was sci-fi. There was horror. There was drama films. And before Shiri, before worldwide cinemas release lineup, when it came to me at Asian movies, my experiences were somewhat limited. I had, of course, gone through the major names like well, Kurosawa's films and these, you simply can't escape them, legendary Asian movies. But I, I still wouldn't say that I had that much experience in Asian films. And I actually, originally, I bought Siri to my collection simply out of curiosity. Simply because it was, at the time, it was pretty much the only Asian movie. Most definitely only South Korean movie that we had in Finland. It was the opening film for the worldwide cinemas lineup. And from there, from that experience, from buying Syria and seeing it, that kind of got me interested in Asian cinema altogether. To a point where I ended up purchasing the entire release schedule of worldwide cinemas releases and after that there was the follow-up if worldwide cinema was these high profile triple a movies like shiri there was a lesser kind of a b movie lineup called asian vision which followed worldwide mm-hmm. cinemas i also purchased that to my collections and i also got kind of quite interested in asian cinema together started to read about the history of it and started to finally saw this range of filmmaking that I felt was quite different from how films are made in West and what kind of stories are told in West in a sense that I felt that the Asian films were much more grittier and had mm. nastier endings in them and that really spoke to me. So yeah, in, in many ways, Shiri to me is my entry point into becoming a hobbyist in Asian cinema. Okay, good to know. Not even sure where I entered, but it's somewhere around Ringu, the uh, Ring, Japanese version of the Ring, the original. Yeah, I, I have to confess that I actually saw, when it comes to Ring, I actually saw the American remake. First. But two years before I finally managed to see that original Japanese version. I even saw the Korean remake of Ring before I saw, <laughs> saw the original Japanese film. Oh, one can see the production value difference in those, but I like the fact that the original is more subtle. It's not a masterpiece, but I enjoyed it. Uh, yep, to me it's kind of a tie. I like both the American remake and the original kind of a, in equal levels. Okay. History and background of this film. Well, once upon a time there was this uh, Korean War, and this happened to be the inspiration for this film. I would say that this was also an entry point for many for the history of Korean War in the Western countries, so to speak. And Korean War is still one of those wars that kind of has been, in my opinion, forgotten in comparison to something like Vietnam. It's completely, even though the Korean War is... Quite an interesting war. It all happened because of whatever took place during the Cold War. And it was kind of a... There was a lot at play. 
China and Russia are coming together to support North Korea and South Korea and the United States and the United Nations on the other side. That could have gone hellishly wrong. And it kind of did. It very much did. Korean War was this strange event where it started as a clash between two ideologies. And from there it kind of transformed into a proxy war, which was being fought between the major nations of the Cold War era. And something that is actually important to note when talking about the Korean War is that if I've understood correctly, the war is still technically ongoing. It hasn't ended. Mm. Last I checked, was it 2015, 2016? And the war was still going on. It just has been in this state of dormant stalemate. And I haven't heard that they have still, even today, they haven't officially ended the war. Yeah, the armistice was made in 53. And after the armistice was done, they never actually have made the agreement to officially end the war. So it's basically still going on. Yeah. Which does, in the end, factor quite heavily today, both in cases when you watch films like, for example, Shiri, and overall when you watch basically the news coverage that centers around the Korea Peninsula. Because every now and then the news broke out that there has been hostilities between the two Koreas. Sometimes it's North Korea has launched missiles against the South or is threatening to use military force against the South. And another time it's South kind of making this counter threat to North. And in those cases, since the war is still ongoing, those technically fall into acts of war. Yeah, they do. Around the time when I started to listen to international news very heavily, I was very much drawn to... There was a lot happening around 2010-2011. I listened about the war in Libya. I listened about the splitting of Sudan. I listened to about the North Korean side bombing an island of South Korea and also other acts of terror. And... After that, I read a couple of books about North Korea and what's the state of affairs there right now for the regular people. And it's incredibly sad. It kind of depends on what books you read. If you read the North Korean version, there's nothing wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I understand things can be sort of even decent in uh, Pyongyang, but get out of that city and oh boy, oh boy. Basically, fall out from the inner circle of the party, and you end up facing a hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah, and I guess everybody knows that, well, communistic, uh, totalitarian country, so if you raise your voice a little bit too much, if you know what, what I mean, if you get critical against the DPRK, you are off to the gulags. Then again, it has to be pointed out that North Korea, in the end, is communistic in extremely vague notion of the term. It, it's basically North Korea's communism is just North Korea stating that they are communistic. Pretty much like China makes the open case that they are a communistic nation. And you really can see the actual ideological communism at work 
in anywhere. I disagree. They have the person cult. That's the religion, basically. It's all owned by state. What are you actually saying that it's not communistic? Of course, there's different types and levels of communism. Let's not pretend that there isn't. We should learn that from Vietnam, for example. But there are all the hallmarks of communism. Uh, then again, the kind of the baseline communism most definitely should steer away from personal cults and the distribution of wealth, even though owned by state. Yeah, but the state in these cases do not distribute the wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, yeah, I'm obviously talking about communism as we have seen it at play. Uh, yeah. Usually, but like on the paper, of course, communism. Well, as much as I would say that it's a pseudoscience, it's a much prettier pseudoscience on the playbooks. And yep, and there I do admit that in that sense, you are of course completely right. Both China and North Korea are pretty much as communistic as any communistic nation has managed to be. When a nation has tried to execute communism, but once again, I have to stress that that the communism that the nations have had is entirely different than what is the communism, the ideology. It is kind mm. of a, the major tragedy at play here because I personally feel that communism would it actually be possible to execute as it is. As a political theory, like it's in the books, it actually could work pretty well in in those cases. The problem comes from the fact that whenever we people try to execute communism, we always end up fucking it up simply due to personal greed, personal ego, and all of these things that which actually communism the theory denounces. Yeah, there are there might be just inherent flaws. In the whole idea that allows this kind of person cult to happen, I have read the Communist Manifesto some time ago, uh, but it basically didn't read like a proper manifesto. It se seemed like some kind of a. It was supposed to be some kind of a propaganda outlet, but to release it as a manifesto, well, it reads exactly like a propaganda piece and nothing that you would actually build the system around, and it's really short. Was it like 50 pages? Something like that. It depends, of course, about the manifesto. Since there is a couple of those from different authors and different party heads. So, as I think I mentioned, this is uh, South Korea's attempt to make South Korean movies great again. There was a problem around the 70s when the general population of South Korea considered South Korea movies kind of a cheap in quality and everybody was looking for the latest blockbusters and international films, mainly from the US, of course. And if you look at the South Korean uh, movie market share in 1993, it was only 17% of the total of movies watched. And that's pretty shocking. But then came Shiri and it, of course, changed everything. They were trying to get ideas from Hollywood, do something different put a whole lot of money into it like never before seen. And this was the start of a new era for South Korean cinema. I would also argue that it's blatantly obvious in Shiri that Shiri is a movie that was also meant 
to be exported. Shiri is a film that is meant to be seen also outside of South Korea. Something that is being made to appease also Western kind of a tastes. Yeah, I guess, but uh, really it doesn't come off as strong as you would first expect, I think. You know, uh, Shiri is quite a fast movie. I mean, fast and smart in the sense that there is always information coming that is useful. There's not a second wasted in this film. Everything counts. Every scene counts. Every shot counts. It's all information packed and it's never repeated again. Just goes on like a train. In uh, American Hollywood films, they keep repeating the plot point that people can keep up. Here you really have to pay attention if you want to like fully get it. Even though at the end of the day it's quite simple, really. But to get the nuances, the whole picture, then you have to really keep your brain alive. I would even make the case that at points Shiri moves too fast. Possibly. But then when you look at other South Korean oration films, it's kind of a trend that repeats. And that it doesn't leave you any room to think about it, it just moves on. But also you're right that this is the kind of a, yeah, this, how is it described, kind of a, like a fast octane, fastly moving piece. Yeah. The cast and crew of this film, I would pick four actors to talk about. We have, hopefully, getting this right, because of course I do, because I am now the master of Korean language. Pronunciation is something that we really excel here in the Flick Lab. Yeah. So, firstly, we have the lead star, uh, Hansok Yu. <laughs> he is playing the Yu or the Ryu of this film. I have seen two different ways to type this name, and I'm unfortunately I do not know how to correctly pronounce the character's name. But it's either Yu or Ryu. What's your opinion on this? <laughs> what? What about the pronunciation? About the. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not touching that subject here. But would you agree that we have an R here, or we have it without R? <laughs> I, I, I would agree that we we have a bunch of letters here. Okay, we have a bunch of letters. Bunch of letters is uh, also acting in Green Fish, Christmas in August, The President's Last Bang. <laughs> have you seen any of these? None of those. None of those. I yeah. also have to. Mm, Kind of confess that from the male cast of this film, like the head leads, the three males that really are the main roles in this film, Hansa Q is the one that I'm least familiar with. Yeah. Yeah, when it comes to the rest of the male cast, Choi Min Sik or Song Kang Ho, those two I'm much more familiar with, and from them I've seen a shit ton more films than from Hansu Q. Yeah, we know this much about Hansu Q that he was born in 64 in Seoul and he was debuting as a radio actor. And then he became a TV talent and uh, there's a weird comment in the DVD that I have with the profiles of the actors. It says, quote, though not particularly handsome in the traditional sense, he was starring in some of the top crossing films. Unquote. Well, I think he's really handsome, but it's kind of a Maybe this is coming from South Korean point of view. To me, he looks a bit like he's, he has some qualities like Pierce Brosnan. I would say he could have been. <laughs> once again, let's let's mention James Bond once again in this goddamn podcast. But he looks like he could be the James Bond of South Korea. Now that you mention it, it's pretty good call. Yeah. Okay. So then we have uh, Chamin Shi. <laughs> Chamin Shi. 
acts uh, the part of Park Buyong, who is the antagonist of this film. Also a guy who has kind of made a big name of himself after the year 2000, after a shitty breakout. Absolutely, and he's known for Old Boy from 2003 that many people in the Western countries have also seen. Then maybe the last scene, I saw The Devil from 2010, which I in- enjoyed thoroughly for being as sick as you could expect. He has also been in Lucy. It's a 2014 French film with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, there is a lot of in the series cast actors who have visited international cinema and performed, for example, American productions. Yeah, for example, the next actor in line, Kim Eun Jin. He's acting the role of, again, I do not know how to pronounce this because I believe in the film the actors say the names completely differently than they are written. But he acts the role of he or he or he, I believe it's he. And he's best known for, well, in America, he's best known for lost TV series where she played Sun or Sun character. And in ABC drama series Mistresses, she's also been in Korean films Seven Days from 2007. Then there's a Korean crime thriller, The Neighbors, from 2012. All very interesting from their background, got some rave reviews and would love to see them. Then we have Song Gang-go. He's playing the detective friend of Yu or Ryu. He's playing Lee. But most definitely the most well-known and or the actor who has made the most high breakout in films from this lineup. Yeah, probably. And he has also been acting in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Also a very great film. I've seen it a long time ago. Enjoyed it a lot. Owned it at some point. He's also been in The Good, Bad, The Weird. Action thriller slash comedy. Then there's Snowpiercer. And Secret Reunion from 2010. Secret Reunion I can recommend. It's not like any kind of high art, but once again it's centering around the relationship of North and South Korea and there's an agent in the South and <laughs> and he has an interesting and funny relationship with the South Korean character. But yeah, he's one of those Chan Woo Park regulars who have made regular appearances in Park's films. So in that sense, extremely interesting actor to follow and Quite versatile when it comes to the performances he can give. Like this is a guy who works pretty much in every setup that you simply put him in. You can put him in a creature feature sci-fi horror, like he was in The Host, plays extremely well there. Or you can put him in the good, bad, and the weird, and have him a comedy role. He manages to pull that off also. Or he can, you can put him in the extremely violent and add dramatic roles. He's one of these actors that you just can't give him material and he makes it work. Yeah, I haven't seen him being the antagonist, but he has a very protagonist type of face, very fatherly, very friendly, and I think there he at least shines really well, but I'm not doubting his versatility. If you want to see him kind of antagonistic, I can recommend Park Chan-wook and his films. There is a film, Thirst, which is this dramatic horror film about vampirism. And in there he plays kind of a a dramatic bad guy, a priest Hmm. who gets infected 
by vampirism and then tries to kind of continue his existence as a vampire who still tries to keep himself from becoming a monster. Scene by scene, ladies and gentlemen. We start off with a high-speed training in North Korea. Already so, the problematic yeah. note. I mean, the credits has just passed us, and yeah, this is kind of a hard note where the film starts off. Okay. Well, it is a bit of a question mark if this is a rogue operation inside DPRK, or is it the operation that is DPRK approved? This is something that the film never tells us. But judging from what might be most possible scenario is that this one is a DPRK approved. And uh, this scene is definitely influenced by John Woo, Hong Kong films and Hollywood all combined. So before you crucify this scene completely, I would say that this is more of a like a nice nod to their inspirations. I think this is an one important distinction as well as the fact that this just might not be approved by DPRK. I don't know. There again, basically what we are following here is military training. Most likely this is some kind of a special ops division which they are trying to train. But yeah, it is basically a military training where they actually, the training circumstances are such that people get murdered. Yeah, and how are you going to carry out on such of a scale of an operation to bring such of a devotion to your country if you're not going to go all the way. And yes, the, this training has no ethics whatsoever, but it is also a very efficient way to train someone. Uh, most definitely, yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> once again, you know, as someone who has a military background, even though as light as it may be, I'm not arguing against the efficiency uh -huh. of this training. I'm also not arguing against the scene itself as a form of filmmaking. It's extremely good scene, this training montage that you get. Filmmaking-wise, it's made extremely well. But there is kind of that small notion, the small caveat that this is South Korean film which shows North Korean military training almost or not even almost. Completely brutal, completely dehumanizing. Yeah, and this is this would be the first point where I would... Well, here it's still questionable. We do not know if this is supported by the DPRK or not. We just don't. I would almost make the argument that the, the training here being shown is of such scale. There is so many people being trained, there is so many instructors, and the premises which they are being trained are such that this almost has to be approved mission or approved form of training. This is not something that happens behind the backs. Okay, and even then, so what? So what? Tell me, Henrik, so what? We have seen countless of brutalities from blowing up planes, blowing up people, cutting off people's head with an axe, like the famous axe murder case from the demilitarized zone over a cutting of a tree, which ended up with cutting of two U.S. military people's heads. The reason why, why I'm actually making a notion here at the beginning is the fact that arguments have been made both for and against the notion that Shiri 
is a type of South Korean propaganda. And I'm going to tell you the complete otherwise tonight. Yep, yep. We we can argue on that. I'm not for the sake of notion. I'm not currently at this point. I'm not making the case that this is propaganda or that Shiri is a propaganda film. But and hey, yeah. but but seeing the opening scene, the opening training montage, you kind of can see where the argument that this is a propaganda film comes from. Yeah, certainly. And I'm not saying that that the plan wasn't in some parts to make it a sort of a propaganda film. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't come off as strong as it would come if you would really want to make that point. Yeah, if we are going to return to this point later on in this episode, is this propaganda yeah. or is, is this not? Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's save that argument towards the end of the episode. But it, yep. it is kind of a tricky, tricky question. It's gonna be a bit hard discussion because it's. I think we will get an opportunity to talk about this in the future episodes with somebody from South Korea as well. So you know, well, you get the Western perspective here, if any, and then you get somebody who lives in South Korea. Yeah, so, so to anyone in South Korea listening to this episode, this is the exact style of conversation that you get when you leave these situations to be talked about simply by two Western white guys. <laughs> so to avoid this, the next time we are looking for you know guests, just, just you know, please let us hear about you. Since we yeah. most definitely would also want to have South Korean perspective on the matter. But when we really look at just the just the facts what we know. We do know that DPRK is brutal, has engaged in terrorism, especially in the past a lot. We also know that the food rations of this uh, North Korean army are extremely low. There's a scene where they're giving food to the soldiers and uh, the character Park gives more food to he. And of course this is kind of driving the point home as well that, you know, maybe there's a food shortage right now with the soldiers and yeah that's 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 about that subject and then she hands over her badge because she lives to north because she leaves to south korea to be an undercover agent for the following years yes she finishes her training which is accompanied by burning the actual act of burning a family photograph this way kind of showing that Emotionally, she cuts all ties to her family and the life that she has had previously. Like that is, that is the high point of her training. You denounce your family, you denounce your past, and after that, you know, you finally are ready. Then we list the kills of her. First in June 1993, she kills Kim, nuclear scientist. In November 94, she kills Cho. National Defense lead in July '94, she kills with a gas explosion a bunch of people in Seoul. In January '95, she kills Yoe, security strategist. In May '96, she kills Kim and then nuclear submarine personnel in general. She also then does some killing in another submarine or what looks like that. Is it uh, Operation U2 or the submarine is called U2? She kills a bunch of people, rice with blood, the goodbye on someone's body. And we get the kind of an idea what kind of a character that this is. Of course, this is getting a little bit surrealistic in the sense that I believe there is not annual killings by North Korean agents in South Korea. But once again, we have to kind of suspend our beliefs. And this is, again, a fictional story, of course. 
So, and we're talking about a rogue operation. Uh, that it is. This is not any kind of a filmatization of a historical event. Yeah. Well, he goes to disappear for six months. Or he. Uh, he disappears. This is weird saying he or somebody who is a she. But he, she disappears for six months. Appears in Youth Dream, which is extremely violent to something that you would expect in Hollywood usually. He wakes up. We have an introduction of you and he. There's some funny discussion about fishes and how they operate and how fishes cry. It's a weird quote. Cry underwater. You'll see how it works. Okay. <laughs> I doubt it, but I might just try and share it on our YouTube channel. Now there is a one way to get content out. <laughs> Next we see her and you in bed. This scene explains the meaning of their relationship to each other. Their chemistry is shown. It's great. She gives the kissing gurami fish. If one of them dies, so does the other. Very romantic. I like these scenes. I enjoy all the scenes between these characters. That it is. It's. I also very much am a fan of these more humane scenes. Yeah. On its core, Shiri is pretty action-packed. Also quite violent. So in that sense, these more moments of simple tender notions kind of gives a levity to the rest of the film. And helps out to kind of ease the tension which comes with all the violence that is on screen here later on. Yeah, I think it, the whole system works immensely well. They have action scene, then they can slow it down by you going back to home to he. And God, this name so confusing probably everybody. <clears throat> but the agent goes home, they have this romantic moment, and then it's back to the serious stuff. It works... Uh, very flawlessly, in my opinion. The, the, the pacing works here. And um, we have a meeting with Lim, the black market arms dealer. Well, it's a very short meeting, I have to say. They are trying to meet him in the shopping mall. He wants to be protected. He asks to change the floor, suddenly the third floor of electronics at the last moment. Runs away, and we find out that it's because he knows that the meeting is corrupted by the presence of the sniper somewhere. So, there's also kind of a Maybe a very subtle hint given to the audience that somebody might be thinking that you is responsible for the death of Lim because he starts running immediately when he's killed, well, naturally, and tells to his colleague that he was a sniper victim. And there's no telling. His colleague cannot tell if actually you or Ryu killed him or not. But of course, in the investigation, then it's shown that it's, it was a sniper. I guess it's pretty clear. It's just something that I noticed that that Lee could be thinking at that moment. It's obvious to the audience what is going on, but of course there is the is a constant state of paranoia going on with the characters. Yeah. This is a film which in the end makes the notion that none of these characters in the South Korean special security forces, none of them actually fully trust each other. There is the notion given that they all in the end of the day, they all are kind of suspicious of each other. Did you watch this film with Finnish or English subtitles? I watched it with the Finnish subtitles. Do you have the same translation as I have for the weirdo character at the office with the fishbowls, psychopath? Yeah, it's translated the same way in, in the Finnish subtitles. Yeah, that's kind of a rough language, in my opinion, as something that you would say in Finnish to your colleague, but it's repeated throughout the movie, and actually it works in a comedic way. 
I think it's a really funny character. It is also kind of a funny system that is being shown here, where you you kind of uh, give these nasty notions to your co-worker, and especially with this character, who gets called out as being the weirdo, kind of by everyone in this film. Yeah, with uh, one really golden line when he's saying, don't put ashes into the fishbowl, and the colleague answers, my goldfish smokes too. Unfortunately, the English subtitles, if you try them, they are corrupted, at least in my version. So they are out of sync at some point, and then I just gave up and, okay, I'm not going to continue like this. It would be better for this podcast if I saw the English subtitles. But uh, I ended up watching it with Finnish and then finding myself in trouble with some of the titles of people and some sentences, so I needed to translate them in my head to English, but I survived. Overall, the subtitle quality... At least in this version, by which I guess we both are going on here, is unfortunately kind of a lackluster. Because there is problems also with the Finnish subtitle track. Yeah, there is. I think they messed up the names at some points. Sometimes the subtitles are also a little behind or too much forward. There are typos. There is, at parts, they are not actually placed that well with the image. No. Kind of a jumps around, and it's kind of hard to say that what the hell went wrong so completely here on the release. Who the hell released this in Finland? Yep. It's not the... By no definition is this the worst I've seen. (laughs) When it comes to Finnish subtitle tracks, there is way more worse, way more worse examples to be found. Yeah, yeah. So the story continues such that they are trying to find Lim's dealer and why he wanted to kill him. He as in she, he. And then we have a shot of Jodo Harbor in North Korea. Uh, the commander explains that they want no more corrupt politicians and how they will be responsible for changing that. And Park is now sent to South Korea at this point. There's a police raid to an arms dealer base. The people inside are destroying evidence. Lim did business alone, so they have no leads. They're struggling. They're having a discussion at the office. The two secret agents are there. So the commander of operations commands them to get rid of he, he, she, ASAP. They believe uh, the sniper wanted something from Lim. And what could it be? So the North Koreans and Park reach Seoul. Then we got to the more lighthearted stuff. Because Lee, he, and you went to the theater. There's a weird moment where they are waiting for the bus in the rain, and then they decided to go some other way, or they're trying to take the metro or something, and then they just completely lose Lee. Where's Lee? Lee just disappears. <laughs> <laughs> so leave the sucker completely behind. That is the every man for themselves attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was a different culture in Asia where everyone is working together. Yep. Well, Lim has moved $1 million to Kim. Somehow they are able to find this out now. That's a pretty uh, shitty way to conceal it. So Kim is the defense researcher in South Korea. And uh, he gets killed by a fake phone call, which makes him leave the office and come into plain sight of the sniper. It's a bit of a weird death. He kind of stares into nothingness for a second. At least the viewer doesn't see anyone there, but uh, he dies. And that's about it. 
then we get to the explanation of the infamous CTX. Well, CTX is a revolutionary liquid bomb, it lacks odor or color and, and cannot be detected. And Kim, Kim the researcher, was about to give information to Lim, the black market dealer, about CTX. And it's actually pretty stupid that they are willing to transport four liters of CTX to an... There's an ammunition show, apparently, that is going to take place. And why are they taking so much of this CTX on them? <laughs> like, if you can blow the whole goddamn soul into pieces with that, then, then that's extremely stupid idea. And this is where I agree that this is like a major plot hole. Nobody in their right mind would do such of a transfer. I don't know. I mean, if you are going to a major ammunition show, you most definitely want to make sure that you have enough of the stuff. Like, nothing is as embarrassing as it would be to first make a big fuss how you, you have this new revolutionary bomb, liquid bomb material, and then all of a sudden notice that you just brought too little of the stuff to the ammunition show. Yeah, so how are we going to perform tonight to show how to blow up soul for reals yep i, I mean I, I i would say that if you are at first you start to hype that we are going to blow up entire soul tonight as the main event of the expo you kind of have to live up with that promise well there's that we get to the big action scene in the road there's a roadblock for ctx and a firefight ensues funny quote from the driver i'll fax the papers to the north korean because that's yeah. that, that's how military regulations work. Yeah, of course, the, the, the South Korean was being quite sarcastic there, I believe. I, I'm not sure. It was... It's almost, you know, to me, it almost comes off like he's being sincere here. Perhaps, perhaps. But he was genuinely pissed that they were stopped for no reason. So some shots of the shaky cam are a little bit too shaky here just for the sake of being shaky still i'm not complaining because you can tell what is happening all the time which is a big difference to many hollywood productions so once again i think this is handled pretty well there is a one shot where they are about to throw the gas grenade to do the truck to get the south korean soldiers out of there and in this shot the camera would could definitely be just still. There's no reason for it to shake because the camera is not moving, it's just in place, but somebody's just shaking the camera, so it was a bit funny. Also, on the same way, once they've made their way inside the truck and are breaching the lock to the CTX containers, the camera brings extremely close to the to the actor's back. His back kind of takes the almost the entire screen at that moment. Oh, okay. Then there's one again out of these many briefings. He, the sniper, asked a CTX from Kim, and then Lim has apparently bribed a scientist to give it. I'm not sure if they're talking about Kim right now, or is it another scientist? Well, anyway, yeah, must be Kim. But the transfer didn't work out for some reason, so that's why they tried to stall it on the road right there. CTX was stolen, and now they have the ability suddenly to blow up the entire city. We find out that these are indeed some kind of, or probably are, some kind of a militant, some kind of a private league of their own, and we get the confirmation on that later on. It is, actually, now that you mention it, it is important to note here, in Shiri, that the North Korean faction 
at play is actually a militant cell. And this is not an official act of war from the state of North Korea. Yeah, and I think that's a major distinction to make when watching this film. But we'll get to this discussion. Yup. It is extremely important to make that notion. Yeah. Okay, and Park and he meet in the internet cafe, or is it a library? Something of that sort. And Park asks via the chat application that he should complete the Kissing Gurami mission. In other words, to get rid of his, her, uh, well, he is her boyfriend, which is Agent Yu. And next we see Yu asking for a favor via phone at the gas station from inside a car from somebody. We find out that that's his friend. We don't know anything else about him, I believe. Then Yu comes home, stalking inside the house, not switching the lights on, waits for the someone to appear. This is an interesting scene. Is this already the moment where Yu is suspicious of something in his behavior, or is he just being paranoid that somebody is following him, or it could be the both? But there is the sense that he has already seen he in the kitchen. It's quite obvious, even without the lights on. And for a moment, uh, Yu just stares at her, doing nothing. I just took that as him being paranoid. But was there something suspicious about the fact that he, as in she, didn't put on the lights straight away? She went to the kitchen and then she switched them on. Would that be something like trying to play it so that she would have been there earlier? I don't know. Could have been. It's kind of hard to say since I actually do the exact same thing. Occasionally. (laughs) I, I'm I'm kind of biased here to say that there's nothing at fault here. So scaring the bitches out of your family every once in a while. <laughs> he and you are in the balcony having this romantic scene once again. This is very beautifully shot somehow. I, I really feel nice energy here with the song playing in the background. It's really warm and nicely shot. They are putting the laundry onto the whatever the fuck it is. Do you think if... He, if she would have been successful in her plan to kill the leads of both countries, do you think she would have tried to stay with you afterwards? Or would it be so that that would have been doomed from the get-go? I guess so, but that could have been already too much for her to handle emotionally. I don't know, I'm I'm kind of on the fence here. Yeah. The way how the proceedings play out in the film, of course, makes it completely impossible. The plan gets uncovered too far for he to actually ever return back to family life in South Korea. That is kind of out of the question at the end of the film. But if we would go with the notion that the investigation would not have gotten that far, if the North Koreans' plan would not be that uncovered as it ends up, I guess, you know, she just might have tried it. Return back to family life. Yeah, because there is the statement that is sincere from her, where she says that with you, she is herself. And also when they are putting the laundry up at the balcony, I get the feeling that the way that she's talking suggests to her that, well, I don't get the idea from her that she would be gone anytime soon. 
there but are... of course there's also some of the acting that she kind of i suppose she she must pull off during those harder times now that she is killing everyone left and right and there is also the notion that as it gets stated at the very end of the film he is pregnant at this point of the story so i'm not saying that that automatically gets you to stay with your boyfriend and choose family life but you know that is still one plot point that gets brought up and when it comes to the question would she have actually returned back home after a successful bombing well she was pregnant you can take it as you will yeah i well logically thinking she would have been the number one target right off the gate with the other north koreans so she would have had to disappear with her boyfriend and then the boyfriend would know what's going on at some point then again only in the case that they would have actually managed to uncover her alias mm. Mm. i mean the alias that he uses is well until the very end of the film her alias is extremely well crafted and hidden so which is a kind of an absurd point which we can talk about soon waiting for that point then there's uh, yet again one of those hundreds of briefings actually this plays like some kind of a csi at some points because there is this big action scene then they have all the time in the world to get back to the office then back to action then to home and have a perfect family life and then back to office to do some officing again it is very fast paced in that sense like the rules of the time reality it, it seems very much like some kind of a tv series reality time wise but it doesn't feel like a tv series well anyway there's the briefing and we find out that these are eight special forces that they're up against it's revealed that he and park were involved in a plane accident well not really an accident a terrorist attack and this is where you knows park from and perhaps the biggest thing you could somehow read as a propaganda if you want to read something as such is the quote or then an action plan that's familiar to them they talk about peace and stab you in the back end quote perhaps but they do that so how do you say that it's purely propaganda it was again those in moments yeah when taking the note the history of tensions between the two Koreas and some of the incidents that have happened the quote kind of a holds water kind of a yeah I'm, i'm looking especially at you missile strikes against south korea mm-hmm. i'm also looking at you north korea being officially listed by the united states as a state sponsor of terrorism which has held water for a long time yes so in that case There is weight behind the quote, behind the notion. Yeah, of course they could have to- toned that down if they wanted to. But the reality of being what it is, I don't really find it offensive. No, yeah, it's very hard to actually say, is it offensive or is it not? You kind of would have to put yourself in the North Korean shoes yeah. to make that the distinction. But the fact is that these types of quotes and attitudes at play throughout the film at least in no way does they help to create communication between the two koreas well yeah let's just say that both sides have not been perfectly supportive of that happening 
But now in the later years, well, there's been something. There's been something. But I think the only reason that North Korea is playing the ball right now, to an extent, is that they can keep on carrying on with their nuclear program. That could be one. Also, the the trading embargoes, yeah, which have been put against North Korea, those are something statistically have been proven to be actually quite efficient in changing political attitudes and sending the message that you could actually try to choose an easier way. I forget the North Korean defector's name, but there was this North Korean defector that was involved in a bombing of a plane. And later she has been sorry about this happening. And she has implied regret in her language and has even published a book. And the book's proceeds went to supporting the families of the plane crash. And uh, she supports my understanding that the only thing why Kim Jong-un is playing the nice guy now is to get what he wants to continue the nuclear program and to possibly, this is not what she said, but they could be asking for, which they have done, right? They have been looking for financial support from China because they're fucking broke. Yeah, I remember, actually, I've read the book... Really? Some ages ago. Okay. I mean, if we are now talking about the same person and the same goddamn book, it's quite old. Did it come out in... What was it published in the 90s? The Tears of My Soul is a memoir of Kim Hyun Hui. Yeah. An North Korean agent known for planting the bomb on board Korean Air Flight 858. Yeah, I've read it. I read it some years ago. Not so that it actually matters at all here on this discussion, but when it comes to her notions about what might be going on behind the North Korea's policies and how they play their politics nowadays, I'm not refuting her statement. I do very strongly believe that she is right in her assessment of the situation. Yeah, could be. Probably has a better opinion on it than me. <laughs> has a better opinion on the matter than both of us to combine. <laughs> yeah. But what can you actually do when you don't get North Korean guests on this podcast? <laughs> well, like, for fuck's sake, seriously. I wish, I wish. The thought had occurred to me. Yeah, maybe we should actually contact Kim in Facebook and <laughs> send him a PM. Please come guest <laughs> in the next episode. The North Koreans somehow get access to the stadium and one guy is looking for the men's room at the wrong place and kind of browse in the environment and Park is doing some modifications to the lighting system or what looks like that. Then we get to meeting of Yu and Ho at the Downing Street restaurant. He might be able to help somehow Yu. Well, it's never actually established how Ho would be able to help in this situation. But they agree to meet later and this meeting is the perfect excuse to kill some more people and to give the explanation or give the clue to our actors why you wasn't shot when she had the chance. And perhaps it's really not a problem, but you can tell that they didn't really build this character. It's just some, some guy, some friend, and deserves to be shot because the plot says so. Anyway, more briefings. Boss tells you to not talk about the incident, even to Lee, his partner, so tensions get colder. Park calls the office, 
Bach makes the remark that in North people die of hunger and here people have fun. And, but once again, you can read that as uh, propaganda, but what he says is entirely correct. Then Bach says that there are 10 CDX bombs around Seoul. And somehow you then decides later on that this is just him fooling the officials. And actually there are just, as we know anyway, two bombs. Well, they could actually make Shiri too and then explain where the rest of the bombs are. <laughs> but actually, appears that there are no more bombs after this movie is finished. So they find the one in Golden Tower. And the timing is set so that they don't have time to defuse the bomb. But yeah, that there's a funny thing. They have the bomb detector in the Golden Tower. And then the technician gives the sign to go ahead into this closet that the bomb is here. So apparently it is detectable after all. Well, you moves he to a hotel, to a safe place. She starts drinking again. She cannot tell what's wrong with her. She runs back to him in a uber romantic chester outside the hotel to ease up the tension that they build in the hotel. I, I really love that scene. In TV, the North Korea leader says something that could be said to be kind of a bit too much. Because the North Korean leader says roughly, I will end the act of confrontation and start an age of understanding. And this comes off as, at least to me from the subtitles, it comes off as North Korean leader being sorry that he, he has been looking for the confrontation. He admitting that he has been looking for confrontation. And now he starts the age of understanding. It sounds a bit off. I just took it as your typical political jargon. Could be. Yeah, where the representative of both sides make the notion that I am going to be the person who starts the peace negotiations and starts to unify the two countries. Yeah, read into that what you will. But it sounded a bit weak. Then again, I have the best kind of idea because I speak perfect Korean. And again, no matter how you say it, it to me it sounds like basically the prime minister of every nation giving any kind of a speech. Next we have to set up in Huai Culture Center, because Yu calls Lee to say that he is henchman, a or the CTX expert from before in this movie, has approached him and wants to make a deal. So Yu dresses up as the expert. Because he's trying to expose the leak. He expects someone that leaks information to appear. But it turns out so that Lee is actually suspecting you. Because he wasn't shot in the previous scene with the friend of you. The friend Ho. This is the moment where the paranoia between the two main agents of the film comes to its high point. Absolutely. Now here they are both suspecting each other. And... Both are, in a way, trying to investigate each other and letting traps to each other to see if the other is the mole, which they have been hunting. I'm not sure if Yu is suspecting Lee, but it could as well be like that. But Yu is the one who called Lee, so of course Lee is going to be there. Well... And I should add, I should add, it looks like that immediately Lee recognizes Yu, so uh, Yu is not even playing or does not succeed in playing the game where he would mask himself as being the CTX expert because Lee makes the notion of something like, oh, the cap fits you very well, looks good on you. The main point of use stunt here was to see if the North Korean strike force 
tries to interfere with the meeting and tries to assassinate this specialist Lee is supposed to meet. Because if the North Koreans would show up, it kind of would prove that Lee is the mole. Since it was only a phone discussion between two parties, Lee was supposed to be the only one who would know that there is this imaginary specialist who he's supposed to meet. So he coming to the meeting, being followed by the North Koreans, would kind of automatically finger him out as the mole. That, of course, kind of goes nowhere immediately since the North Koreans actually do show up and the gunfight ensues. It does, but it's surprising that well, Yu is putting his whole life on the line because he is playing the CTX expert and the North Koreans would be interested in killing him. That's what they try, but somehow they fail. This whole firefight ensues for the simple fact that he was unable to complete the mission Kissing Gurami. And this is when tensions truly escalate in many levels because he is getting shit from Park later on that this escalation happened and they lost many men. And Park escapes barely by taking a hostage. The overall shootout here is one of the high points and the reasons why this movie had the effect it had on me on my first viewing. I think it's brilliant and whoever is complaining about this shaky camera, they can complain about it for themselves then, but... I don't have any problem with the shaky camera. The shaky camera brings more effect to the action scene. I don't have a problem with that if you can tell exactly what is going on. And and you can. I don't have a problem following this film. So if you're going to complain about the shaky camera, then go on and go ahead and complain about the shaky cam in the born identity. So complain about that too then. I too feel that the cinematography is extremely nice here. And I also like the way how the shootout here is being built, in a sense that it is kind of a typical in Western and especially in American action films, that the situation is played out so that there is a hero and then there is a bunch of bad guys. And the bad guys have an absolute stormtrooper mode activated so that they are firing all around with automatic weapons, can't hit shit, (laughs) while the hero scores headshots and takes them down during the firefight, and in Shiri, they kind of turn that on its head in a way where the scene essentially is only a couple of the North Korean operatives against the entire goddamn security force of the South Korea. And it's the South Koreans, aka the film's good guys, who comes off with full force, using automatic weapons, not managing to hit the North Koreans, and the North Koreans are using pistols holding off the entire South Korean security force. So that was something that back in 2001, when I originally saw this, or somewhere around that, when Shiri was originally released in Finland, it kind of felt even a bit revolutionary. It was a bit revolutionary to see the bad guys be the underdogs in a shootout and the good guys being the ones who can't hit anything. And that being combined by the fact that there is quite a lot of blood squish being shown as the bullets hit to a point where it at times even feels like something filmed by Paul Verhoeven. (laughs) And also the fact that when a shootout finally gets to the kitchen area, 
and reaches kind of its high point. At that point, you can actually see the kitchen being completely wasted by the bullets. Something goes aflame due to the firefight, and the kitchen gets entirely tarnished during the proceedings. Yeah, beautifully done. Beautifully done, and something that you don't actually see that often. It's good notions that you made. I would just add here that I'm happy that the action scenes, they are not overly long. They are, in fact, it's kind of a shockingly short in the first scene where they're trying to look for Kim in the shopping area. So I think it's well balanced. You don't get numb watching this film, even though it's a very noisy film. That you don't. And also, I made the notion at the beginning of the episode that at times I felt that the movie moves too fast and could have slowed down a bit. And this is actually the exact point. Okay. In which I had the problem because there is the moment when Park takes the innocent bystander as a hostage and uses her to escape from being surrounded by the South Korean forces. And he completely disappears mysteriously. From that point on, it immediately moves to two situations. The first one is Yu's friend who was present during the shootout and saw the hostage-taking situation ending up in some kind of a... Is it a parking lot or a construction site? Anyways, someplace where Park is hiding and Yu's friend tries to take Park in and gets himself killed in the process. You don't actually see how Yu's friend followed Park, like how he found his way into the construction site. And the same thing happens with Yu following he. You don't actually see the moment how Yu picks up his trail. You simply immediately jump into the moment where he's following he. Yeah, I think it was extremely unclear and what was his contributions to anything. And I'd, it's good that you made the notion that he's a friend because I didn't know who the hell the guy was. But he's killed with some kind of a pole and that's just some dude in the darkness getting pulled. That it is. This is kind of a, something that, well, belongs to the Scissors of Sacrilege section. <laughs> but in this point of the film, I would have actually added couple of scenes more, showing both you and his friend picking up the trails that they end up following. Kind of a showing up, how, how do they get the sense where they should go next? Actually, if you look at the DVD extras, there's a section called Director's Cut, and in this Director's Cut clip you see different kind of edits being made exactly to this section of this film. So. Perhaps they weren't exactly sure how they were going to play this one out. That may be. Still, it's kind of a shame in the final product. Like, this is me being nitpicky. I don't think there was any connection. Like, where where do they even tell about this guy? All we have to assume it's just some kind of a friend. Friend of horse. That it is. That it is. And he comes to the entire park escaping with the hostage scene kind of all of a sudden. Yeah. Like, Park is retrieving from the scene with the hostage, and all of a sudden his face just comes into the frame. At least if this is related to in any way to the character of Ho, then because he was shot, well, he survived, but uh, then I was uh, kind of assuming that the deal was off, and he was not able to help you. And that's it. 
and then we have just this random scene. Well, okay, but better to move on at this point. You tracks he down and realizes who his lover is, and he's completely heartbroken, shocked to the core, and it's a great scene. He is very able to, you know, transmit the emotions to the viewer. Then he and Park argue at the goldfish store. I don't need traders, blah blah blah. He tries to kill herself when given the empty gun, then picks her own gun, almost shoots herself, but Park makes the notion that we have some things here to do, honey, so not yet, baby. Then we get to meeting of the real Hyun, and apparently this is the character, again, this is not very clearly, in my opinion, explained, but this is now Hyun, the real Hyun, and he took the identity of this Hyun, now major plot problems or plot questions right here. Okay, you gets to Cheyu Island to the Hala Hospital to meet her. So, how is she able to exist, Henrik, in this hospital, alive? Because everybody needs to use the social security and everything. So, how is she alive if he supposedly stole her identity? I just always took it so that since Hyun can't leave the hospital, like, she's being tied to the hospital due to her her social security number never actually comes up. I mean, the hospital staff knows that she's there, mm. and they are already automatically taking care of her, and if she never actually leaves the hospital, well, maybe, maybe he just can use the social security number and her identity, and nobody is the wiser. Yeah, it seems to be a little bit on the shaky ground. I mean, there are, there could be a lot of points where shit could go south, but he is taking the risk and seems to work. So, so it turns out that he was renting something from Hyun and was very friendly to her. He even called Hyun from Japan. Now, this is a major fuck up of he, basically, because, well, seems that they were very close and she's willing to fuck up her camouflage by making a call and even telling that she went to Japan to have some kind of a small cosmetic operation when in fact she went there to completely change her appearance. So he is giving all kinds of clues all around, so a bit sloppy. Well, to her defense, she's finding friendship and finding nice South Korean people around her. It is sloppy, it is dangerous, it is something that you most definitely should not do would you be in his position, but I I, I guess it's just, you know, her becoming a better person, in a sense. Yeah, Yeah, it has to make the point that she is not really evil, even though well, she is just under the spell, under the instructions of her mother country. So what you gonna do? Brainwashed and tied completely. Lee then realizes that the fishes are all over the office. Then this is a kind of a weirdly pulled off because then he starts listening to a recording that he just immediately thereafter pulls out of his box. So now he's able to listen to some recording from the fish store that he already has, even though just a minute earlier he was surprised how the office was full of these fishes with uh, recording devices. So I'm, I don't understand. But, uh, my take was that 
at that point. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I get it. So the microphones that was inside the fishers, he didn't know about those, but he did use some other microphones in the fish store. Yeah, it was way back in the proceedings when Lee originally started to suspect that you might be the mole. That's true, yeah. Or that his girlfriend might be the mole. Like Basically, Lee is suspecting everybody here. And at some point, he hid some microphones into the fish store. Just did not actually listen to them, those mics that actively, but now that he finds that the fishes that have come from the fish store to the headquarters of the South Korean security forces have been miked, he puts kind of the one-on-one together and understands that Yu's girlfriend is the mole. Yeah, right, right. And finally takes the action and listens the mics that he has hidden in the fish store. Right, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has a solid reason to check on the fishes. So these are some kind of SU-300 microphone. <laughs> I could find some some microphones on the web with the SU-300 added to the name, but these were some shitty microphones for $5. But anyway, something more sophisticated here. And so just more about he... He apparently didn't need a new passport because she changed identity. I didn't really get that either. If she changes identity, then she probably needs a new identity. Or this is talking about the Hyun identity card. So, okay, then that makes sense. But how to get this kind of an identity? That's one of our interesting question. Because some modifications might need to be made. Or is she just using the identity card straight off the gate that she has? But somehow... She never actually checks on that. Is she still in the possession of those? Or he makes a um, copy of those identity cards, identity documents. I guess she has to have made copies. Yeah. In the end, he and Hyun do not look that much alike that he could simply outright use Hyun's identity papers like a passport. Yeah, and... I guess it's kind of a believable that he could actually be able to create such of a copy. Well, if you think about it, these were sent by, still by the DPRK, as I understand it. Yeah, otherwise, it wouldn't, this just existing in South Korea wouldn't be possible. <laughs> Quite clear. So they are sent to South Korea by DPRK, but they go rogue in South Korea. They start doing their own mission. And they, of course, have to have some kind of a budget in South Korea. And I bet they get a pretty good budget. And with that budget, they can make copies of passports and IDs. I can buy that. Yeah, it is at least partly military leadership is sponsoring them since they are partly, or at least part of the military leadership is actively taking part in the plan that the North Korean special unit is trying to pull off in the south with the explosives. So the boss of you doesn't believe that a bomb is at the Seoul Stadium. That's mighty convenient, of course. It's pretty silly, actually, but... Well, we know that the boss has listened to you attentively. Now he doesn't. Then again, he kind of might have a reason for that. A lot has happened since those nice little days at the office. You has lost face by hanging out with a North Korean terrorist. Then Yu's colleague has died because of all this. The boss might be mighty pissed. 
What's your take on it? Is it reasonable that he is not listening anything of you? Well, it's I do admit that it's incredibly convenient mm-hmm. that this is the moment where he loses his faith with you. But at the same time, there is the fact that the South Korea is going with the notion that Park has planted several bombs around South Korea. Like he originally stated in his ultimatum, which he gave to the officials. And there is also the fact that, like his boss points out, the leaders of both Koreas are at the football stadium watching the exact same match. So the bombing there would kill both leaders and it would automatically destroy the peace process that's going on behind the scenes politically wise and all that would make this attempt from North Korean military as it is it would make it a outright terrorism and it would also make it a coup that's a good point so so yeah it's a military coup that's what it is that's what Park says at the stadium also he hints that after this is done then our military will take over the business yep he does point that out like that that is the ultimate plan which is at play here and there is something that does not in the end have the approval of the high elite of north korea and the highest leadership this is simply high-ranking military officials or some of them who have cooked up the plan and who are the main supporters of this attempt at north korea's side it could have been easily solved this whole situation with the boss, if you would have just mentioned to the boss the kind of crucial information that it was Lee's dying wishes that they would actually go to the stadium. But God damn it, you cannot say that. It is, yeah, that is something that most likely would have resolved the situation and gotten you some backup at the stadium. We can see that the boss is extremely busy. Was he in some kind of a helipad at the moment of the call, so he's, it's a miracle downright that he is able to hear anything. But you would think that if you is pointing out such of a plot, then the boss would at least ask, okay, why do you think so? What, like, what is this? What are you, why, why, why would you pursue like something like this? But no. It's actually quite surprising how often the actual leaders of these security sections and departments when the push comes to show are actually quite out of the loop and quite hesitant to believe their top man when he actually tells them what's going on and where they should actually send their troops and the backup. Yeah, this is too convenient. But anyway, it's an action film. <clears throat> Everything is happening fast, so they're <laughs> maybe they're hoping that nobody notices. But um, we have the final at the station. North Koreans arrive, they set up the bomb, they set up the lighting. And by a miracle chance, you notice the lights being on, simply because of the fact that, by chance, because of a balloon explodes nearby. Yeah, that's one hell of a lucky break that you catch us on. <laughs> and of, again, a firefight ensues when you get inside the control room. There's an interesting question about CTX and how this whole thing works now. Like, do they absolutely need one of those lights to be on to activate the bomb? Couldn't they think of anything more simple like, I don't know, flashlight? Was it that 
well explained. It just has to be some kind of a light source. It needed light and it needed heat before it right. started to react. So I, I don't know, with that notion made, I don't exactly know where the CTX bomb at the stadium is getting heat from. And that is a very good point, yeah. Yeah, the light comes from the lights. That much is given, but what generates the needed amount of heat? This is a bit unclear storytelling. They never show in a shot where uh, this bomb actually is. But since these are the mechanisms of the bomb, then the choice is probably that it's just it's just in front of the light somewhere up there. That would be my guess also. But yeah. like you pointed out, the film never actually shows you where the bomb is hidden. It does show you repeatedly the timer so that you know that the time is running out and they need to react quickly or the bomb is going to go off and it's a matter of seconds if the explosion happens or if it does not. But at no point they do actually show you where precisely the bomb is hidden. They don't, and this is a very Hollywoodian moment where, of course, there's only five milliseconds left before you heroically switches the emergency switch off and the light source is switched off. But yes, here we get into some practical waters once again, because if we want to look for the plot holes here, well, you could at least ask the question. Now, they have switched the light off. Okay. There are about half a second left now. Okay, so it would be my assumption that the CTX would not be able to dissipate the heat so fast that in less than half a second or so, it would gain the correct amount of temperature again. Or, well, okay, if it needs light source and the heating both at the same time, then then that might work as a plot point. That was my take. Like, that was what cuts the process off just in the nick of time. That being said, of course, the CTX is almost about to explode. Like, we are going on with the milliseconds, and as it's actually even shown in the film, the lights don't go off immediately like like that, when the yeah. switch is flipped, but they dim. Yeah. So, yeah, L- like you said, it actually, most likely in real-life situation, CTX would have already gathered enough heat and the lights would not go off fast enough to CTX to retreat back to its non-dangerous form. Like, like the process would have already gone far enough that the explosion would have happened no matter if you would have actually managed to flip the switch or not. Yeah, perhaps. Well, some movie magic. We can maybe grant that the light was able to go completely off in in half a second but basically you know read into it what you will it's a movie it is and it is a movie where the disaster is ultimately averted by you flipping a major yellow switch on a wall so you know take that as you will you know there are those hollywood moments and the ending most definitely is one of those there's a good notion from park before he bites the dust he says, football would bring us together. Bullshit. And that's one point where I actually agree with Park. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I mean, of course, Park has power behind his notion that the peace process and the political proceedings 
around the unification of the two Koreas has been extremely slow. He points out that it has already taken 50 years and fuck all has happened. And the situation in North Korea's side is extremely dire. And this football match is in no way any kind of a magical resolution. Like, of course, it's not going to happen so that the two leaders see this one football match and all of a sudden the peace treaty is signed and the unification goes through and the troubling days of North Korea are behind its back. Yeah, I was just kind of a half joking about it, of course, like... It helps for the general population if you get more contact with people that you might have some fear issues about, but it's still like this political nonsense for me. And then again, through political nonsense, a lot has been achieved throughout the history. Political nonsense is not completely without its merits, but of course it has to be noted that political process altogether is extremely slow and extremely volatile. The political process can pretty much come to a dead end from even the slightest of distraction at any given point, no matter how well things have gone before. Yeah. So in that sense, I am against Park's notion about the football match. I, My opinion is that it actually could help a lot with the tensions between the two Koreas in a long run, since these small political favors and small political nonsenses, in a long run, they may have a major effect. But it's not a miracle cure. The football match in itself is not going to solve anything at the moment. It would be just, you know, in maybe next 15 years, the tensions would ease. And when you would look back at the entire process, you would make notion of the football match and say that, yeah, it was an important moment in the entire process, but the football match in itself would not have any Mm. direct effect. Those were pretty dire times for North Korea, as we understand that the 90s were extremely hard on North Korea with people suffering there. And... uh, the relationships were also extremely dire. So, Shiri is actually a very positive movie, all considered. But he tries to then kill the president in a desperate attempt because she gets the idea that uh, the plan has gone south, but she ends up dying herself. The last moment she tries to shoot at the presidential car. Interestingly enough, you lets he shoot first, and only then he shoots her. And you can really feel the emotion of you during this scene. It's quite heartbreaking, in a sense, although she's a cold-blooded killer, on the other sense, but as mentioned, her personality is quite split at this point. She's a cold-blooded, but she's not completely heartless. Hydra, as mentioned, by you. Modern-day Hydra. Which is actually a pretty good symbolic notion. And we get the uh, mention about pregnancy. Nobody knew about that. And I'm not sure what's the overall implication of that to the the whole whole plot. Like, is it important if she did or did not tell about that during those times? I mean, it's like, okay, who cares? It was not going to end up well anyway. Well, my reading is that it does show that he 
really wanted to stay with you. And even after North Korea launched its attempt, he was kind of accounting on that they managed to pull it off so that the trail does not leave too directly back to her and she might be able to return to you and have this family life. Yeah, well, perhaps. Yeah, and she not telling you about her being pregnant takes the weight off you's shoulders. When you shoot her, he does not knowingly shoot a pregnant woman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a sucker punch that comes off after the final gunshot. Good point. Somebody pointed out that this movie has multiple endings. I don't get this idea at all. No multiple endings for me. No, I don't know what what somebody has been smoking once again. But there is this where it could, I guess, end, but could be kind of a bummer. It's about his voicemail about CTX. Um, She says to ask someone else to come get her at the stadium if something goes wrong. Somebody instead of you. And she says... Quote, with you I wasn't Hyun or he, I was myself. I miss you so much. End quote. Once again, punching you a little bit more. And then we get to the end scene. A very proper end scene. Here the real Hyun gets the kissing Gurami. And Hyun gives to you the music to listen to. The favorite song of he, which is the extremely excellent uh, rendition of the When I Dream song. And... This scene could have played out a little bit slower even, I would say. It could have been without tracking shot around you. It could have just played with the emotion a little bit longer. But then again, it takes a little bit long to just look at the open sea. And and that's a beautiful shot and I don't complain. It works like this as well. It is a nice way to end the film. Yeah. Well, we can finally, now that we have gone through the entire film, to finally complain about complaining. So my first point that I would start to argue about or discuss about in this podcast would be arguments against plot being predictable. Okay, well, then the burden of proof falls on the person making such an argument. A predictable, first of all, do what? But sure, it's an action flick, so it must have elements of predictability. It's bound to have those elements. Exploding cars, plotting, backstepping, bombs... Police force and hero saves today. What again is the point here? To like predictable to whom? I think it was fresh, at least from my angle, to look at this this action film from a Korean looking glass and it makes every second count. There is nothing that is loose here. It's always pulling the punches. It's just always taking it forward. It totally pulls you in. And then we should kind of argue, is it predictable in a silly or a smart way? Which one is it? Predictable in a good or a bad way? Because there's a difference there. I would say it was never too silly to kind of uh, take you out of it. Nope. I too never found it silly, and I wasn't taken out of the film. To me, kind of the predictability of the film, it was not an issue. It did not hurt my viewing experience at all. But at the same time, of course, I have to admit that basically the entire plot structure more or less is something that I have seen previously amidst other things in American films. Yeah, sure. Like the plot structure is very typical and many of the plot points are very typical. 
to the point of of you's partner dying at the final stretch of the film and you being out of the loop with his boss and you having to finally face off the rest of the bad guys alone at first. All of this is stuff that you've kind of seen countless of times already in action films, but at the same notion, there is the old truth that if it's not broken, why to fix it? Yeah, and it's surprising that coming from many American critics, they are very critical, some of them, about Shiri taking this very Hollywoodian approach to their cinema. And well, what the heck? It's not even... Well, first of all, it's not Hollywood. They are taking some elements from Hollywood. Well, arguably a major part of the film in its style. Okay. But they manage to do it extremely well all around. Uh, they do. And so you kind of have to also take the note that Hollywood does not own cinematic language or the structure of action cinema. No. It does not belong to Hollywood. No, they are taking a formula that seems to work and they are emulating it in their own way. And sometimes even just making this kind of a hat tip notion and it doesn't come off as extremely tacky. Nah, nah. Yeah, and at times they are actually doing Hollywood better than Hollywood itself does Hollywood. (laughs) For example, I myself liked a lot that the major action sequences were kind of a two groups fighting against each other. It is the main characters and the backup facing a group of bad guys. It's not like your typical Hollywood film where it's a one lone hero against everybody else. Now, of course, from the very beginning, we have something of a John Woo reference. He is doing the training with two handguns in one in one hand and moving at the same time towards the target. What can I say? It just doesn't bother me. It's just uh, because of the solid execution. But you can notice these moments. And Well, if you want to nitpick about individual training moment, I think the worst it gets is the shot of the training where he walks sideways, holding a gun and shooting targets at the back, and... In front of the targets, there are actual living people, her teammates and her instructors standing there as an obstacle. Like, she has to keep moving and shoot targets that are behind her friends and her instructors. And she uses live ammunition. I think it's still a believable scenario if they're trying to train somebody to be the extremely extremely trustworthy sniper. So, I, don't I, I, don't, I, don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, in that moment, I myself would never take the risk of standing in that line. <laughs> no, no, no chance in hell would I actually... No, no matter how good you are at the trading, you know, I would not take the risk. Yeah, yeah. Well... With that being said, it's a stunt that, you know, you've seen also performed in American movies God knows how many times this exact same notion of extreme training yeah it's a bit insane I give it that but from start to beginning the training is this kind of a psychological uh, mind bent where yeah they're just trying to get the best out of their people Uh, extremely hardcore training and there's a 
very specific difference here to Hollywood, whereas like Hollywood would usually extend the action scenes to uncomfortable lengths. Here in Shiri, as I've pointed out, every single shot counts to me. It's tight as hell. And that it is. And yet another thing, this film explains to you nothing twice, as pointed out previously as well. So take a little nap during this film, you're kind of out. So it's not a stupid film. It's an above average smart action film, in my opinion. Mine too. I've always put Shiri on my top list of action films. Okay, yeah. Well, then we have to, if we get to the arguments against South Korean propaganda in its full form. And here we have to define propaganda. So propaganda as in untruthful propaganda is what I'm arguing here. That would one way or the other be advantageous, an advantageous lie of South Korea against North Korea for whatever reason. So the fact that a South Korean lab rat, a lab technician would contribute to a North Korean renegade faction you know, how is that painting South Korea in an unrealistically positive light? I don't think it does. It's clearly not advantageous in any way to South Korea at that moment, at least. We can point out many other things, like the main character does the mistake of his life by letting a North Korean rogue sniper into his bed. So tell me, how is this advantageous to South Korea that our lead character is in this turmoil? In no way at all. And actually, on the contrary. But we can go even further here. So, murdering of people in gruesome ways. If you're trying to pull this lever, murdering of people in gruesome ways, North Korean soldiers have been known to be extremely violent, have a strong track record of hacking people to pieces, as said before, with different methods. I mentioned the axe murders. Most of anything, this film has pointed out as well already has nothing to do with the DPRK government. Like, basically nothing. Unless you count the training in the beginning. However, the DPRK is actually depicted as something of a friendly entity. They are extending their arm in this film by visiting the soccer game, which is kind of an unheard of. And there is virtually nothing claimed by the security officials of the South that would be kind of negative. In my understanding, that would be an outright lie. No. So where are you pulling this big propaganda piece then? I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying it to anyone who is saying that this is sheer propaganda and not much of a good film. I disagree immensely. Well, to put the argument to pieces, kind of see how it might kind of work. Not saying that this is my own opinion on the whole propaganda question. But essentially, the definition of propaganda is spreading of ideas for the purpose of helping or injuring an institution. Or alternatively, ideas or allegations spread deliberately to further one's cause or to damage an opposing cause. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, there are notions being made in Shiri. North Korean military training is inhuman, is cruel, is extremely violent, is every man for themselves, team spirit to be damned, and is something where the persons being trained are forced to kill unarmed and tied. The film does not point out are the civilians 
are they South Koreans? Basically, the trainings are driven to a point where you have to constantly kill another person. This is contrasted against the way how South Korea is being presented, which is peaceful, upholds family values, wants to see the democratic process to pull through. So basically, the way how North Korean military training is shown contrast to how South Korean lifestyle and attitudes are being portrayed is extremely at odds with each other. And when it comes to the notion of North Korean leaders here, kind of outholding a hand towards the South Korea, yeah, that goes to the party leaders here, the president of North Korea. At the same time, however, the film makes the point that not everybody in North Korea is supportive of the peace process and democratic process to end the conflict to a point where they are actually willing to launch a coup, kill their own leader, to pull out a war against the South Korea, and a North Korean upper leadership is not even aware what their own goddamn army is doing. Can you even blame them for trying to have a coup? knowing some basics of what happens in North Korea. But it's not really taking a point towards North Korea at that point when we're talking about a coup. It's its its own entity. has nothing to do with South or North in that sense, when we're talking about government level. In a way, yeah, you're correct. It does nothing to do with North Korea as a nation. Before somebody thinks I'm a South Korean propagandist in this podcast, I do know that there are some less than desirable opinions in South Korea or views towards North Korean refugees in South Korea. And I do know that people have not been taking it very well always that uh, South Korea is sending these propaganda posters across the border so that North Koreans can have some information about South Korea. I haven't seen those, but the idea in itself doesn't smell foul to me you know what the hell else are you gonna do because you you can't these people have no methods of contact with the outside world so in that sense but go ahead an outside force deliberately trying to affect the people and the political views within another country or another nation you can make the argument that they are morally right at what south koreans are doing with handing out this information Basically, it's a good thing. You can make that argument, but it still is South Koreans trying to affect the people in North. Yes, I give it to you that South Korea is the model entity in this film. There is nothing that they do wrong apart from the agent, of course, making the mistake of his life, piloting North Korean into his circles, and uh, the traitor to Kim in the laboratory. Yeah, and in the end, the North Koreans are the ones who are the bad guys here. They are the threat. They are a threat coming from the outside against which South Korea must defend itself. Yeah, but... But This all being said, though, I, myself, I do not see Shiri as a propaganda. In a way, I can understand and I can see where someone might draw that argument. But 
I don't condemn Shiri as being South Korean propaganda. But that being said, there's a term in political sciences, or two terms, which are hard power and soft power. And with this, the hard power is is a nation using its economical or militarical means to have its way or affect the political process, or doing politics through economical and militaristic ways. And basically, soft power is how the nation can attempt to influence the way how the said nation is being seen or promote its values, its ideas, its worldviews, and other this stuff through more lenient ways. To give you a Western example of this uh, would, for example, be the TV series 24, which is Republican-produced, aired at Fox Network, and officially came out in 2001 during the Bush administration, and which in its second season had a plotline of Arabic terrorists trying to build what essentially was a weapon of mass destruction in Los Angeles. And this was the plotline of the second season. second season aired during the war on Iraq. And in 24, you follow Jack Power, who throws out the book, throws out the regulations and law, if he deems that the situation is as such that he can no longer actually abide international or American laws to protect America from any given threat, which very often came outside of America. It was Islamic terrorists, it was Mexican drug cartels. Oftentimes, there was an outside element to the threat that was threatening America in any given season. 24 often shows that torture works. If it's a bad guy torturing a good guy, then the good guy can withstand the torture and the bad guys do not get the information they need. But when it's the good guys using torture, torture works, they get the information they need. It does not showcase the arguments against torture holding that much water. This being the fact that the arguments like the torture being an interrogation method that can provide you with unreliable information, and it does not delve that deeply in condemning, for example, Jack Power for using torture as an unethical mean of getting information. Like I said, the series was produced by Republican producers and aired on a Republican network, and throughout the series you actually saw the Democrats being kind of a shrewd and untrustworthy. Not all of them, mind you. The series names the president, President Palmer, was a democratic president, and the show makes the point how Palmer is extremely good president and someone who you can really hold up to the candle. But inside Palmer's close circles, there constantly were persons who one way or the another were actually threat to the American security. In season one, it was Palmer's wife. In the second season, it's members in Palmer's own staff. Not all of them, not all of them, but individual members in Palmer's staff who actually are responsible for the whole Arabs getting the nuke in the first place. There were all these notions being given in 24. 
And this is mm. something that you can actually say that is soft power tactics. I get your point. Yeah. But what does South Korea actually gain by showing untruthful or overemphasized propaganda of the North? What What's the end game? Because everybody with a sane head that has lived out of North Korea all their life, they don't need to get this information that North Korea can be a little out of touch with reality sometimes. No, we get it. So it doesn't benefit South Korea, I think, in any way. I do agree that perhaps the uh, like the security officials, the government, their tactics may be forcefully sometimes emphasizing for the North Koreans, North Korean refugees, that hey, this is how it goes here. Look at this nice video that we have that everybody goes shopping, uh, I, I don't know, you know, whatever it might be, that we are really affluent and we are doing extremely fine and everybody is kind of like a king here. Hey, look at that. But yeah, that, that, that uh, at the same time, that's the truthful state of affairs. And yeah, what does South Korea gain by showing off being better than North Korea? South Korea gains, it's, it, it, it's kind of a hard to say what is the exact intent in But, any given situation. And yeah, this is where we need a South Korean guest. This is something where we would need a South Korean guest. We would also need a North Korean guest. <laughs> You're on the podcast. Thank you all for not showing up for the episode. Thank you. <laughs> But like I said, the topic is extremely large. And it's it's really hard to say from the ass end of Finland to pinpoint and name every single thing that, for example, South Korea could achieve. Yeah. For example, uh, through Shiri. But something that it actually could achieve is a global justification for its acts and its reserved attitudes towards North Korea, it could achieve a message that the rest of the world should actually support South Korea. This also meaning military support, for example, from the US. Like, that's a good thing. South Korea should be protected. US troops should be in South Korea because, God damn, that North Korea. Out of its whack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do not know if there's any kind of a political motivations in like a party political sense, like is this movie supported by some party that supports, you know, populist tactics? Would there be something like this, like a very nationalistic group of people that would like to show off South Korea in an extremely powerful way? Look what we can do against North Korean terrorists. I don't get anything strong like that. We should, though, maybe take a quick look at Samsung and what their political affiliations, if any, are. I'm with you on that. I don't get that notion either. But Shiri is politically loaded movie. It is movie that, at least for my understanding, it got funding from the government of South Korea. The reason that why I mentioned Samsung is that because they were a major part of the funding of this movie. Yeah, and... It's it's a movie that very obviously is meant to be seen also outside of South Korea. In that sense, I do see very powerful soft power tactics in Shiri. That being said, I'm not making the case that this automatically makes the film bad, or you shouldn't have this, or it would be wrong for you to enjoy the film in, in no way. That's not what I'm saying. 
after all, all the bashing I gave to 24 for being a Republican soft power play, I myself like 24 very much. I have all the season boxes in my own collection. So I'm I'm not saying that, that it's wrong or it makes 24 or it makes Shiri something that you should not watch or something that you should condemn or or something that you can't enjoy. And if you enjoy, you are a bad person. That's not my argument here. Yeah. Yeah. In my opinion, you know, go ahead and enjoy them all you want. But what I'm trying to get at is that there is soft power. Shiri, like 24, is a form of soft power. And, well, of course, since soft power is extremely kind of a big concept and kind of an umbrella concept that holds within in itself a huge number of examples. Films, book, music, economical moves, the pandas that were given to Finnish Sue. Like, that's also a soft power move. So, naturally, you know, you may not even personally aim to produce a soft power product, but you may actually end up producing that by accident. Mm. And it's okay. It's okay. I, I'm. I'm not. You know. I, I'm not going against it in itself. I'm trying to say that as a consumer of media, it is better to actually consume the media with open eyes and recognize these things mm-hmm. than to be oblivious to them. Yep. Like we do in this podcast. I hope. Yeah. I mean, that is something that we actually are trying to achieve here on this podcast. In the end, you know, that is why, well, first of all, if anyone at all listens to our insane ramblings here in the Philly Club, well, good for you. You're doing exactly the right thing. But if you are listening to us and and asking yourself, why do we ramble so much? Why do we have all these goddamn monologues? Why do we get off the track so often? These points are extremely important for me, at least. Yeah, and, and why we drew our points from, you know, from such a long way. Well, the reason behind that is because, in a way, we also kind of see the podcast as a way how we can have a dialogue between, you know, each other, between me and you, Kari. We are having a dialogue here. We are exchanging ideas. We are exchanging worldviews. We are sharing ideas between each other, but we are also doing the exact same process to our listeners. Even though it's a, it's a one-way streak, most often the times when we don't get guests in here, but even if we would have, you know, we released the episode where we state all these ideas and beliefs that we hold, and, you know, the listener just listens to them. But, you know, through all that, through all this having a dialogue, we also try to be, well, not educational, product, but a product that still tries to give information out to to our listeners. That is why we go and try to bring out the historical context with the movie. That's why we had the whole how it actually went discussion in the Pocahontas episode. That's why I'm now rambling about soft power and nation politics and politics within movies. Because it is better to be a consumer of media with open eyes than to be oblivious to what goes on behind a film and what all ties into any given film. 
And you know, if someone actually somehow now sees soft power in 24 or in Shiri, hasn't seen it before, I, I think that merits for something. All this was not for nothing. If now someone actually realizes what anything can go behind a film or a TV show politically wise. I think it's really important that we, if we are not educational, as you said, I think we are at least in the technical sense of the film in many ways. But when we start rambling on, you know, the sidelines of the, of the film, what it really means, if it's propaganda or not, for example, in this episode, it's great that we're trying to at least get to the, you know, the truth, that the truth does matter to this podcast. We do not have all the answers, obviously, as you can tell in this podcast. But we try to bring out the points that might be interesting to you. And uh, I think it's really important. And I'm really happy, Henrik, that we are both kind of trying to rationally get to to discuss these points, even though we cannot completely explain 100% how something actually is, because that would be impossible anyway. We try to give you these points and... We try not to be irrationally favorable to anyone, I think. We try to do a pretty honest job in this podcast. Hope it appeals. At least that's what we are trying to achieve here. I can be the judge for us, since I'm obviously biased, being the co-host here. Everyone is biased, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, you know, we still actively try to be as neutral as possible and try to come to the truth hopefully we are successful on it are we successful you know that that's up to the listeners but that's what we are trying to do i understand it could be more entertaining for the listener perhaps if that's what you're looking for it would be more entertaining if we would 100% give you the answer how something is and it would be more entertaining if we would use this two plus hours just fighting each other scrapping ourselves digitally by the neck but I believe it's rather hard sometimes for us. For the simple reason, because we try to look for the real answers here. We're not interested to get tangled into our own biases if we can avoid it. So we understand both that there's the right answer somewhere, or right answers. So no use of beating each other over the head if we don't get it right, because we're both trying to get there. Yeah, but the process that we are at least trying, no, at that merits to something, and hopefully we get it right more often than we get it wrong. Well, moving on from this self-congratulatory, or whatever this part was. Okay, we have talked about the shaky cams, we talked about CTX, we talked about is this film Hollywood or not, we have talked about South Korean propaganda, if any, and we have talked a little bit about plot holes, but honestly, there aren't extremely screaming plot holes in this film, in my view. Sure, somebody who has seen this 20 times, or even once, everybody finds different kind of points here. But, okay, Henrik, name me one plot hole in this film. Okay, it's rather unbelievable, maybe, that he is going to Japan to change her identity and get the plastic surgery rolling, and she looks perfectly natural in her face if you want to look for that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. We can spend the whole night like that, but uh, I would put it in the category of nitpicking a bit. Yeah. After all, we are not cinema scenes, so... 
<laughs> yeah. Let's not even try to go that direction. Yeah, they try a little bit too hard, in my opinion. There is, in my opinion, extremely problematic parts in their concept of product. Well, music, I really liked, if we switch gears at this point. Done by Lee Dong Jung. He has this kind of a Terminator-esque soundtrack elements with all the metallic sounds. Uh, it sounds very modern. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Even so much that I went on to listen to it on YouTube because it happened to be there. Hope I could even own it, perhaps someday. Of course, the When I Dream song is absolutely fantastic. Lee Don Jung also has done the soundtrack for Tai Guk Chi and Miracle in Cell Number no. 7 from 2013. I also like to add from that the films My Way and The Legend of the Evil Lake. Both of which I are extremely well soundtrack. So he is very competent composer. Even if I had not seen this movie for several years, I could always remember the certain cue that goes throughout the film that is most rememberable for me from the library slash internet cafe scene. This it's very catchy. It was it was very nice soundtrack and it holds the movie very well. Absolutely. Premiere and box office. Budget. I got some conflicting information on the budget, but let's go with these two sources and combine them together to say that the budget was somewhere between 5 million to 8.5 million. In USA, it shows me that this movie has gathered gross number of 97,000 US dollars by March 2002. But of course, in South Korea, it was considerably higher. I do not know the actual numbers, how it went there, but we do know that it was seen by 6.5 million people. So more than Titanic that was seen by 4.3 million people. Korea is not much of a movie watcher country though, is it? This sounds pretty low. Anyway, then uh, the so-called quick categories. Fine by me, let's roll it out. Favorite performance? Well, 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 very hard. But I would say I really enjoy the raging of Che Min Shi in the stadium when he's ranting on about how the North Koreans are suffering and have you seen family eating their children or whatever is the line. I'll, I said Che Min Shi. Completely believable performance. Yeah, I'm also very mixed on who to pick as a as the one performance. I would kind of uh, like to give the award here for Hansu Q. Mm-hmm. For, for pretty much for the notion that Choimin Si can be seen in many very prominent films. Otherwise, the same goes for Song Kang Ho, who you can catch up if not from anything else, but for example from many of the Park Chan Wook's films or or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. So in that case, you know, I'm kind of tempted to name Hansu Q simply to, you know, give him the spotlight. From the three male leads, he's kind of the one who drew the shortest straw later career-wise and someone who you may not get a chance to enjoy so easily in other productions. Okay, but generally high-regarded actor in South Korea. One of the most best well-known and uh, easily could also just as well, give it to Hanzo Q this category. 
nor hell even Kim and Chin for playing he. It is. It is extremely talented, extremely tight cast. Favorite scene? Well, for me it goes to the action scenes. Yeah, that's what I was rolling in my head right right now. Okay, it's yep. dropping somewhere there. Yup. To me, the action was always the kind of a, maybe the biggest thing that showed me this movie when I first saw this. And from the action scenes, I would say the kitchen shootout. Mm-hmm. Also a good one there where they destroy the aquariums in the store. Yeah, that's also, also very nice. The action direction is very well done in Shiri. Yeah, funnily enough, one of the most maligned, most most complained about scenes in this film, at least by Americans. <laughs> Go figure. But not only. Critics seem to be kind of split here. What's your favorite quote? I don't know. I like generally just discussions between he and uh, you at their apartment. I might go with, as you mentioned it, Parks ranting at the football stadium. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it made the back hair tingle a little bit. Jeez. Well, it's an action film, but what is our favorite kill? Perhaps, funnily enough, <laughs> maybe the dream kill of you, because it's a nice shot. And the head falls on the table. To me, it's the, once again, from the main action scene of the film, it would be the death of, and for the life of me, I can't remember the character's name here, but the member of Park's team who gets shot in the parking lot. Oh yeah, he dies on the ground, shooting still. He dies on the ground, it's almost like something out of a war movie where you have the injured comrade that you try desperately pull to cover and the enemy is flanking you and firing at you from every position and then the blood squids start to flow. It's very kind of an adrenaline field, but at the same time it's quite dramatic and and, you know, if you enjoy Paul Verhoeven and Robocop-style bloody violence, you get your fix there. Do you remember the tough face that is quite prominent at this stadium? He's pointing the gun directly at you, and he's about to shoot, but then the firefight ensues, and he's pushed somewhere behind the pipes, he's shooting, and then there's the death scene of his. And the way that he bounces, and <laughs> kind of a... Looking funny, It's it reminded me of something straight out of Die Hard. Could be a, like a hat tip there or simply just a death scene, but is there anything that took you out of this little film? Well, if I would have to pinpoint an individual moment, I would say it's the very end of the shootout. The South Korean forces with Lee have surrounded the one female member of Park squad, and she, at that point, she swallows some kind of explosive. And just in the moment when the explosion happens, in the film, the image ratio changes very notably for that one shot of her exploding. Oh, I didn't see. Okay, I couldn't help but to notice that. And to me, that actually, that took me out of the picture for a moment. In no way is it a big goof here. I can see why it happened. Like, they obviously had to stop the overall shooting and shoot specifically the effect shot. And this is just something that 
unfortunately managed to slip through. So I, I'm not holding against the movie itself. But, you know, the tagline is brutally honest. And, you know, this was the question. So that's the answer. Henrik, I know you like to throw yourself usually in the mindset of these films that we go through. As I specifically remember that from Apocalypse Now, if it was really true that you were smoking some cigars, was it, and locking yourself into the room, and, <laughs> and it definitely sounded like that. And now it sounds like you have an electrocardiogram beeping in the background, but I think it's just Discord playing with you. It is the Discord. Yeah, oh, good to know. I hope you're okay there. Well, what took me out? If we are looking for problems in this film, The most that I have problem with anything here would be the, yeah, the North Korean training. Because it could easily be arranged by DPRK. And the point where it goes completely crazy is when the trainees have cut off the heads of somebody else. And they are getting into the row to show their cut off heads. We know that they have some brutal trainings probably. It's easy to make the leap to say so. But that's a bit too much a bit too much. What pulled you in? Kind of everything here. Yeah, pretty much everything. Yeah, I was glued to the screen throughout, even though I've seen this about five times now, but uh, always a pleasure, and especially now. I went to my IMDB and I had given some pretty mediocre rating for Shiri, and I couldn't understand it. I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? And changed it immediately. (laughs) And uh, yeah, perhaps it goes to show that seeing this movie as a kid You can look at it from a more understanding perspective now. Yeah, one of the nice things in art is that your relationship to any given art piece can change throughout the years. You know, once you get older and perhaps wiser, you may either see some merits to any given film or, well, any art piece in general. Or then you can, through the more defined understanding, you can now find flaws and problematic parts in it. So, in a way, art is... It evolves with you. Hmm, it's always so fun to see. Take a ten-year break and then you can see it so differently. Especially horror movies. When being ten years old and thirty years old. Yeah, they are... Those are a really good <laughs> example of something that can change extremely drastically. <laughs> to even imagine that... As a kid, I would find uninvited terrifying. We really need to watch this movie in this podcast, Henrik. (laughs) Henrik, have you been in tonight's random question? Have you been in Korean restaurants? Actually, no. For some odd reason, I've actually managed to avoid. Yeah, my mini investigation found me that it looks like Korean restaurant. There are not too many around here. And I was thinking maybe you would want to join me one day there, because... It looks tasty, but I'm pretty sure I haven't eaten Korean food myself. Yep, sure, why not? You know, maybe the next time I visit Helsinki, we can actually check it out. Excellent. And so, first image that comes to mind from this film. My mind is hopping all over the place. There's so many good scenes. But uh, I think generally I remember the North Korean trainings from this movie as the first one. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that's, that's, that's part of Shiri. That's what I remember. On my end... I guess it would be the South Korean raid at the very beginning of the film where they see this highly technical equipment using task force entering 
the building where they find the executed guy with the goodbye message drawn to his chest. The U2 operation, yeah. Yeah, the U2 operation, precisely that. Yeah. <laughs> Lee was dreaming about U2. Well. I kind of have a soft spot for these dark scenes with a blue tint where you follow special orbs. Mm-hmm. And that's what you get here. Absolutely, and then, yeah, I wanted to point out the fact that uh, North Koreans group, they are not badly equipped at all. We don't get any jeep or old equipment such as some kind of a 50s Kalashnikovs. They have very current technology as well. Maybe stolen, maybe not. But they don't look like they are coming from a different century or anything. Just want to point that out, that they are not showing them in uh, that light that you would expect. Yeah, they are not going around with horse carts and wearing <laughs> a medieval armor. But <laughs> they actually are shown to have electricity in North Korea. <laughs> Scissors of sacrilege. No, absolutely wouldn't touch this, except if I had to experiment anything. Well, I would try to change the end scene to keep it going even further a little bit. But it's great already with the extended view to the sea, so it works just fine. Yeah, I, on my end, like I stated before, I would add a couple of scenes right after the main shootout. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, just so, so something that shows you how you get the lead, how he manages to find he so that he can follow her throughout the city. And watch test. Well, goddamn, there is no time to look at your watch or break your concentration in this film. So, never. Yeah, you immediately lose the plot if you even quickly check your watch. Like, someone has said something plot-related in that time. Hi, Octane. Henrik, would you recommend Shiri? I would. I would. A glowing recommendation from me. Even though we had the major discussion on propaganda and soft power and all that, like I said, it does not mean, or in my opinion, it does not mean that the product is bad or you shouldn't watch it or anything like that. So yeah, Shiri is extremely well made. It's extremely high octane, like you said. In many ways, it, in my opinion, even tops many of the American action movies. It gives you blood squids, it gives you good guys who can't hit anything, and it has its dramatic moments, it has its humor. On top of that, you know, I still see Shiri as a piece that has, that is soft power on its core. And in that sense, you know, you can check it just to see that. If you have never knowingly watched anything that has a soft power message in it, in that case, you know, take my word, Shiri does have that, and you can just check Shiri out just to see what all the fuss is about. And it's a sort of a soft porn film as well, if we are talking about, if we are talking to the action freaks out here, or just simply people who like to see a film that really is really solid. It goes fast, time goes fast watching this film, two hours just go right past you. Would I recommend this film? With flying colors. It's still one of my favorite action films of all time, I would say. And it's just a level of smoothness that is rarely seen. It's not perfect, 
Doesn't have to be. It's my shitty. It's as good as it gets. Let's say it that way. Yeah, agreed. Well, time has come to reveal the next film we are going to tackle. The next film will be the opening of Misty Beethoven from 1976. You might want to look for it on IMDb. It seems to be unlisted, so you have to really search for it. But it's there. Henrik, we have watched action, horror, maybe not comedy exactly, but elements of comedy inside other movies. We have watched drama, thrillers. Maybe someday, after all this, we finally reach the point where we actually watch a musical here on the podcast. Oh yes, yeah. I'm not much of a musical person myself, but when it's not extremely awkward, I can enjoy it. I can enjoy it. I think... You were kind of into musicals. Yep. Okay. I'm not uh, an obsessive snob about them, but yeah, sure. I I enjoy myself a good musical every once in a while. Hmm. But nice deviation from the subject matter, though. <laughs> Next time, it's gonna get a little interesting. Here, I don't think this is going to be any kind of a habit, but since we are an all-around film podcast, we're going to tackle this one as well at least once. Yeah, well, you know, you have to be edgy somehow. And if nothing is going to bring the listeners, I think this one will. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> not, not, not so that we are desperate or anything uh, <laughs> in here, but... <laughs> well, you said it yourself. I think it was even the first episode. If all else fails, this one would be one of our options. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, well, you know where to find us. On the internet, in all the major platforms. Anything to add, or let's go. Let's just go. I think I have a port flick to catch. <laughs> yeah, there's an ammunition show, apparently, that is going to take place. It's not too late. Put out the lights, Henrik. <laughs> put out the lights before it's too late. Now, where did I put that lotion? Ah, uh, no.